Shortly after giving my life to Christ in college, I had a lot of Christian friends and, and family members give me books, and I was reading them up left and right, everything I could get my hands on, and one book that I received in my first year of being a Christian that made a huge impact on my life was a biography about Jim Elliott. For those of y'all not familiar with Jim Elliott, he was a missionary in the 1950s in Ecuador, and he and a group of missionary friends wanted to take the gospel to a group of people known as the Alcas, and this group had a reputation for being an extremely violent and merciless group of people, so much so that those from the surrounding areas did not interact with this group very much at all, if, if at all. But Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Udurian, Ed McCulley attempted to take God's gospel to this primitive and violent group, and as a result, they lost their lives. They were killed by a few warriors from this group. They laid their lives down for the gospel. And toward the end of this biography that was given to me, the author shared a few quotes by Jim Elliott that I still remember to this day. One was a statement and the other was a prayer. The statement says this. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's from Jim Elliott. And then his prayer was this. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. And after reading those statements, it dawned on me that Jim Elliott had made a decision before going to Ecuador, before laying his life down, that he was going to be faithful to do God's will no matter the cost, even if it cost him his life. And I remember this hitting me like a ton of bricks. I was just in my first year of being a Christian And for the first time, I was being exposed to what it looks like to be courageous for Christ. I remember thinking to myself, this is so extreme. This is just too intense. I was was floored by the cost that these men made for Christ. That was until I began to read my Bible through for the first time that year. I came to realize that, that this book, God's book, is filled with courageous men and women who have been willing to make and who have made the exact same kinds of sacrifices. Throughout this book, we have story after story of men and women who have stood against nations, men and women who have stood before pharaohs and kings, men and women who have put their lives on the line and who have laid their lives down for the Lord. I came to understand pretty quickly that this is the consistent pattern of the faithful. 
Throughout history you see this. Throughout God's word you see this. And today we are seeing this. God's greatest servants have always believed that their cause for him is worth dying for. We have seen, as we have studied through the book of Acts, Paul is certainly no exception to this. He was a man on mission for God. He had been rejected, chased all over everywhere, stoned and left for dead, beaten and imprisoned, yet remained faithful. He was willing, if it be God's will, to lay it all down for Christ. He was truly a courageous Christian. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 21. We're continuing our series through Acts, and this morning we are going to discuss what being courageous for Christ looks like and how to be courageous for Christ and what can result when we are courageous for Him by looking once again at the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul is on his third missionary journey and he has his sights set on Jerusalem. We learned a few weeks ago that though he probably wanted to be in Jerusalem by the time of Passover, he was delayed, and so he hoped to arrive at least by Pentecost. And he has a couple of reasons for wanting to go to Jerusalem. One is they're in need. They're in need financially. At this time, the church in Jerusalem was one of the poorest and oppressed and neediest of all the churches And the reason we know this is because Paul went to some extremely poor churches where they were enduring terrible affliction and persecution, and he went there to collect money from those churches, from those Christians, to take to Jerusalem. So their situation had to have been terrible at this time. And while Paul is gathering up money for the Christians in Jerusalem, he also gathers up a handful of of men from the different churches he had started in Galatia and Asia and throughout Europe to bring with him to the Christians in Jerusalem to strengthen the bond between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. Now, why would that do that? Well, think about it. They're in need. Paul comes in bringing all this money from where? From these Gentile churches, right? with these group of Gentile believers in hopes that there would be a a wonderful bond that would be strengthened there between these two groups. It's It's a great plan that Paul has in place. And so we've been looking at Paul's trip to Jerusalem. And last week we left him in Miletus. Remember, he had stopped off there to minister to the leaders from Ephesus and he gives them a wonderful lesson on leadership. And after he finishes this address to them, they were extremely sad to see him go because they, they, Paul had told them they were not gonna, probably not going to see one another again. It was a very emotional farewell. That's the end of chapter 20. And in chapter 21, we are going to look at Paul's journey from there, from Miletus to Jerusalem. And it's on this journey that we see Luke highlight for us Paul's great courage. He was truly courageous for Jesus Christ. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16 this morning and discuss why Paul was courageous and what resulted from his great courage. And as we do that, I want 
to share several common characteristics of what it looks like to be courageous for Christ as we look at at Paul's example. Here's point number one. We see through Paul's journey here to Jerusalem that point number one, courageous Christians know and are committed to their calling. That is the first characteristic. Courageous Christians know what their calling is and they're committed to it. Look at verses one through three. And when he had parted from them and set sail from Miletus, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. From there, the ship was to unload its cargo. So here in this passage, Luke once again is just mapping out Paul's trip from Miletus to Jerusalem. Notice the word we is used. Luke is writing the book and he's indicating that he is with Paul here, which is the reason why we have so many details of this trip. So Luke is, Luke is giving us an eyewitness account here in verses 1 through 16. And take a look at the map once again. This First is, is Paul's third missionary journey. He starts from Antioch, sets out through Galatia. He goes through Asia. Then he sets sail and goes over to Europe. He goes through Macedonia, all the way around to Greece. He wants to set sail for Syria, but he cannot. So the black blocks show, show him going back through Macedonia, around to Philippi, and then across to Troas, and around to Miletus, which is that white circle. Do you see that? That's where we left Paul last week. Let's go to the next slide. And this is where Paul is going today. They parted from Miletus. They set sail and went straight to the island of Kos and stayed for the night. Then they set sail to Rhodes and from there to Patara and arrived at Patara. Uh, when they arrived there, they were at a port there and they switched boats from a small boat to a much larger cargo ship to set sail across the Mediterranean. And we're told they passed right by the island of Cyprus toward Syria. And they landed at Tyre, where the ship was going to unload its cargo there. And uh, so we see here at the beginning of Acts 21, Luke is just kind of mapping out Paul's trip here, right? There's not much that, that Luke gives us here. There's not a whole lot here for us to pull out and pick apart and, and explain, other than the fact that Paul is on a mission. That's what I want you to get here. Paul is on a mission. He has his sight set on Jerusalem. He knows what God has called for him to do, to go to Jerusalem, to bring financial aid to the Christians there and to bring Gentile believers with them so that these Christians can be strengthened. There's a very simple narrative here, but lying just underneath the surface of it is a very important truth. The apostle Paul had a clear calling on his life, an obvious objective, and nothing was going to get in Paul's way from going and setting out and accomplishing what he had set out to accomplish. To be courageous, we have to have this kind of calling on our lives. 
We need to know what God has called for us to do in his word. And we need to look at the context he has placed us in. And we need to come up with a clear plan that, that lines up with God's general calling on our life, believers. And we need to be committed to that plan and to that calling. A few months ago, I challenged you to look at where God has placed you in life. And look at the people he has brought into your life and develop a plan for ministry. Have you done that? Have you spent time thinking about who God has called for you to be and what he has called for you to do in his word? Do you realize that God has you where he has you believers for the purpose of ministry, for the purpose of making him known, and for the purpose of making disciples? And have you developed a plan on how to reach those around you for Christ? I wonder if we went around this room and, and, and in the next service as well and just asked people at random, tell me your plan for ministry. I wonder how many of our folks could just rattle off an answer right like that. What's your plan? What's your objective? Do you have a plan in place? Listen, I want you to get this. You will never be courageous for Christ if you are aimless in life. You have to have an aim. You have to have an objective. You have to know what God has called for you to do. And you have to develop a plan to do it. And you have to commit yourself to do it. And you have to make sacrifices in order to do it. Have you ever heard the saying, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well? Folks, kingdom work is worth doing. It's worth doing well. And it's well worth the sacrifice to be made for it. Husbands or wives, if you have an unbelieving spouse, listen, investing in them in hopes of rescuing them from sin and death is worth any price you have to pay. It is. Parents, though I know Many of you would love your kids to graduate college and make six or seven figures and, and, and have a, a, a big family and be comfortable in life. Listen, their eternal destiny should be your number one concern. And you should be willing to sacrifice anything to that end. Very, very important. So to be courageous for Christ, you have to, you have to know what God has called for you to do and you have to commit yourself to do it. That's point number one. Here's point number two. Courageous Christians refuse to be diverted and stay the course. Look at verse four. Remember that Paul is in Tyre. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days and through the spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem so notice that while Paul is in Tyre he is there for seven days he met up with some Christians there now this is interesting I want you to to note this the believers and this church in Tyre were not a result of Paul's mission ministry but a result of Paul's persecution campaign very, very interesting. We're told in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, those who were scattered because of persecution that arose over Stephen, remember that was head up by Paul, traveled as far as Phoenicia. 
And Tyre is located in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So we see here, God used Paul in this area before he was even saved. He and others like him at this time, they were persecuting the church and they were the catalyst that shot the church out of Jerusalem and out into the world. And the believers at Tyre and the church there were fruit from that. So we see here that God used the wicked acts of Paul before salvation to advance his gospel and expand his kingdom. He can and does use both, the good and the bad. And believers, we need to pray that he'll use both. When times are bad, pray that God will use it for his glory and to advance his kingdom. That's, a, that's what God is in the business of doing, and that's a biblical prayer, okay? So they, they, they spent seven days together, and it must have been a wonderful week because at the end of it, they were begging Paul not to leave and go on to Jerusalem. One reason is they wanted him probably to selfishly stay with them. Paul faced this issue a lot, though he had a lot of folks chasing him out of town. He had believers, oftentimes, who did not want him to leave. So that was probably one of the reasons why they wanted him to stay with them because they obviously loved him. In just a minute, we're going to see in the passage that when it was time for Paul to go, we're told the believers at Tyre, along with their, their, their wives and children, followed him outside the city, and then they spent time praying for him, and they were with him, and then they returned home when he left. So they probably didn't want him to go to Jerusalem for that reason. But another reason that they did not want to go, an important reason, is because they knew that there was danger in Jerusalem for Paul. The Christians at Tyre knew how important Paul was to the advancement of the gospel, and they wanted him to stay and continue on in the work of ministry, which is why they tried to convince him not to go. And I want you to notice what Luke says here in verse 4. It's very interesting. He says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, this is very interesting. If Luke would have just said they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, we would have no problems here. It's that phrase, through the Spirit, that, that brings some issues. Because if the Spirit of God were speaking through these believers at Tyre, telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, then Paul is being disobedient by going. So we need to kind of work this out. And I don't know about you, but I don't believe Paul messes up here at all. Though he was a sinner, he was not perfect by any means, and there were other times when I believe Paul got it wrong, like when he disagreed with Barnabas over John Mark, we learned that John Mark was a good guy to invest in, right? We got one of his books in our Bible to prove that. So I believe Paul was in the wrong here, but I, I do not believe Paul messes up here. I do not believe he's being disobedient. Some will then say, then how do you make sense of that through the Spirit? Well, there have been a number of different explanations given for this, but I want to make a stab at it this morning. I believe that the Spirit did reveal to them that there was trouble in Jerusalem for Paul. So I believe it was the Spirit who gave them insight into what awaited Paul in Jerusalem. But I believe that after that, after being given the right information, they make the wrong application. They draw out the wrong conclusion that Paul should not go. And the reason I think that is because we're going to see it happen again in just a minute. A prophet lets Paul know that there is trouble in Jerusalem, which there is, and Luke and the others beg him not to go. The prophecy is correct. 
He will be arrested in Jerusalem. But does that mean he should not go and bring relief for the believers there and bring representatives from the other churches with them to bring unity to the Jewish and Gentile churches? No. So they were right about the fact that there was trouble that awaited Paul. They were just wrong in what they tell Paul to do. And Paul knew this. Look at verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So notice Paul stays the course. I have no doubt in my mind that the believers in Tyre were a solid group of Christians. But when they thought about what might happen to Paul in Jerusalem, they thought the cost is too high. Paul, you can't go right now. We we need you. It's a volatile time in the church. Believers are being persecuted. The church is is struggling financially and spiritually. If you get arrested and killed, where will that leave us? Now, those are valid points, aren't they? But we know that God doesn't need Paul, but he uses him. But get this, Paul had been a pivotal player in God's kingdom work to this point. And there were many times when Paul got out of town and fled from danger to continue the work elsewhere. But here we see that Paul is convinced of what he is to do, and there is no one or nothing that is going to divert him and keep him from his destination. Being courageous for Christ means knowing what God has called for you to do and committing yourself to do it and not being diverted, but staying the course, get this, at any price. That's point number three. Courageous Christians count the cost and pay any price. Look at verses 8 and 9. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. All right, let's stop here for just a minute. We have a very neat gathering here between Paul the Apostle and Philip the Evangelist. You remember Philip in our study? We're introduced to him in Acts chapter 6. He is the second leader chosen by the twelve to serve the church in Jerusalem. The church had grown too big, and there was a need for the church to be more organized. And so they appoint seven men. And two of the seven were Stephen, you remember Stephen, and Philip. Luke tells us that both men were full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And remember, Stephen ministered to the Grecian Jews around Jerusalem, and he is killed for it by men under the leadership of Paul. And persecution breaks out that Paul heads up, and these Grecian Jews are scattered. And Philip is one of the ones who is scattered, remember? Because of the persecution of Paul. And he flees and he goes to Samaria and he takes the gospel to the Samaritans. And he leads one of the first Gentiles to Christ, an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. And so notice here we have Philip and Paul. 
who were at one time at odds with one another. Paul would have arrested Philip back in the day, probably put him to death, but now here they are staying together under one roof, enjoying sweet fellowship together. God is awesome, isn't he? He has truly transformed this relationship. Philip also has four daughters who prophesied. We see fruit in Philip's household as Philip continued on in ministry. Look at verse 10. While we were staying, Luke says, for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So while they're staying at Philip's, notice a familiar face shows up from Judea. You may not remember him, but Agabus was mentioned earlier in the book of Acts. He is the prophet who came to Antioch while Paul and Barnabas were still at Antioch and he prophesied about a great famine in the days of Claudius that Luke records in Acts chapter 11. And as a result of that prophecy, Paul and Barnabas went to Judea to bring some relief to the Christian brothers there. So he is the reason Paul went to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. And now he brings him news about what's going to happen to Paul if he returns to Jerusalem. And not only does he tell him, notice he shows him. Now this seems sort of strange to us, but this is not out of character for God's prophets. He often has them do very strange things to make a point, doesn't he? We, we are told that Agabus takes Paul's belt and binds his hands and feet and says, the Holy Spirit says, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now notice here, Paul gets more specifics here from Agabus, right? He learned in Tyre that there was trouble awaiting him in Jerusalem, that it's dangerous, don't go, is what they tell him. Here, Agabus says, you're going to be bound and you're going to be delivered to the Gentiles. Now, Paul knew what the Gentiles were capable of, didn't he? He had received his worst beatings to this point at the hands of the Gentiles. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra and in Philippi. He and Silas are severely beaten and put in prison. He'll later be killed by the Romans. Notice that this news is so troubling that some of his closest friends, Luke and others, urge him not to go. We're told they were crying and begging him to stay. Look at verse 12. When we heard this, Luke says, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And, and we see here that Paul is definitely feeling the weight of this as well. He is coming face to face with the cost of going to Jerusalem. And we see here he has definitely stirred up emotionally when Luke and some of his other close companions and Philip and the other believers in Caesarea lose it. And they beg him not to go. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Paul says, all this crying is getting to me. Why are you trying to break my heart and keep me from doing what God has called for me to do? Why are you trying to soften up my will? Cut it out, guys. And then notice 
He reaffirms what God has called for him to do and the price he's willing to pay to do it. This is amazing. Verse 13. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had counted the cost, and he states in verse 13 that he is willing to pay the ultimate price for the cause of Christ. That's boldness. That's being courageous. That is courage on display in the face of loved ones, those closest to him crying and pleading and begging him not to go. Paul basically says, it's God's will that I go. Therefore, I'm going. I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for Jesus. What a response. What a wonderful example of what it means to be bold for Christ. And in studying this passage, I began to think, about countless number of Christians who have probably been sidelined because of the concerns of those closest to them. Well-meaning family and friends and other loved ones who have softened the will of God's people, saying, oh, it's just too risky. The price is just too great. The, the, The cost is too high. The sacrifice is too much. Believers, we need to be very, very careful that we are not that voice of concern standing in the way of what God's trying to do. Very, very important. If you have a loved one who is sold out for Christ and is willing to do whatever it takes to advance his cause for his glory, for the sake of his kingdom, what's greater than that? What's greater than that? You probably heard this said before, but it's so true. There is no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. That is a safe place wherever you are. And Paul was in the center of God's will, and he was ready. He had counted the cost. Remember, he was reminded of the cost everywhere he went, everywhere he stopped. Believers would warn him, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Trouble awaits you. He counted the cost and measured that cost against God's calling. And he says, there's no question, I'm going. He was courageous. And we learn from his actions that being courageous means just that. It means counting the cost and being willing to pay the price for the cause of Christ And one last point, this is so neat that we see here. Another point to make about courageous Christians. Courageous Christians lead and influence others. Look at verses 14 through 16, I love this. And since he would not be persuaded, Luke says, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And then look at verses 15 through 16. After these days we got ready and we went up. To Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. They tried to keep Paul from going. He said, I'm going. And they said, Let the will of the Lord be done. We're going with you. And the whole pile of them went. Folks, courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. If you want to be more courageous for Christ, Hang around people who are courageous for Christ. And if you want people to be more courageous for Christ, be courageous in front of them for Christ. 
Courage is contagious. I love that. They were saying, don't go, don't go. Paul says, I'm going. They said, we're going with you. And they acknowledged it was the will of the Lord. Right? Awesome. Well, before we close, I want to end by saying this. Though Paul is, once again, a wonderful example for us as believers, especially of what it means to be courageous. Believe it or not, there's one greater than Paul. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told during his three-year ministry, he, like Paul in our story from today, had his sights set on Jerusalem, and Christ knew that death awaited him there, but he still went. And we're told that when Christ shared that he was headed to Jerusalem to be killed, some of his closest friends, his disciples, tried to keep him from going. One of his closest disciples, Peter, got in his way a few times. He tried to prevent Jesus from going and fought those who came to arrest him. And each time he was rebuked by Christ. We also learn that Jesus, like Paul in our story today, he eventually makes it to Jerusalem and After a while, after arriving there, he is arrested and he is delivered by the Jews over to the Gentiles and he is beaten and killed at Calvary. But we also learn by so doing, he accomplished what needs to be accomplished for us to be forgiven and made right with God. After living the perfect life for us, Christ laid his life down, that perfect life, down for us. And not only did he suffer and die a painful death on a shameful cross for us, we're told he became sin for us, who knew no sin. He took on sin. He became sin. He was crushed by God for us. He endured God's wrath for us. He took the punishment that we deserve physically and spiritually. And three days later, he rose up out of the grave. And he did this for us so that we, through him, could be saved. And get this, we we learn as we continue to read the story that Christ's courageous work at Calvary made a huge impact on his disciples. Courage is contagious, isn't it? All of them, minus Judas, were saved by faith alone through Christ alone. All of them, minus Judas, were courageous for Christ. And ten of the original twelve, and Matthias, the replacement, and others laid down their lives for Jesus. God wants to do this kind of work in us. God wants to do this kind of work in you. Christ came, suffered, and died so that we could have life through him and live a life of courage and conviction for him. Christ came and he lived and he suffered and he died for us so that we might have this kind of life, believers. And get this. Do you know how we can have this kind of life in Christ? The only way to have life in Christ, now I'm going to shock some of you, is to follow him in death. That's how you have life in Christ, to follow him in death. I know that sounds contradictory. It's not. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what's required of us. To have life in Christ, we have to follow him in death. We have to be crucified with him. And what that means is to have life in Christ, our old life has to come to an end. 
It has to come to an end. We have to turn from our sin. We have to move our allegiance from self to the Savior. We have to repent of our sin. We have to forsake our sin and turn our lives up and over to Jesus. We have to forsake our ways and turn to the one who lived for us and died for us and was raised for us, the Lord Jesus. We have to forsake our ways and our works and we have to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. If you're here this morning, you never made this decision. Now's the time. You're not here by accident. This message is for you. I pray you would respond to it today if you have not. Let's pray.